0: We're going to look at uh, what is the last of the Lukean parables that I'm going to show you. Preston's going to show you one more, but uh, this is uh, the last of the Lukean parables chronologically. We are uh, about to approach the, uh, the passion of Christ, and uh, this parable bumps right up against Christ's entry into Jerusalem. Um, we're coming off the celebration of our nation's independence, and I've always I've always been impressed. Uh, with the guys who were in on the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I don't know how much you know about the men who were part of the signing, of the document of the Declaration of Independence. I don't know if you ever thought about what might have been going through their mind as they they wrote their name, put their stamp, put their seal, their approval, put their mark on what uh, was really a pretty big deal. I mean, it, it was a separation of nations that's why we celebrate it to this day. But I've always been impressed with those guys. Let me read you something about those men. Fifty-six men signed the Declaration of Independence. Their conviction resulted in untold sufferings. And this is, this is just to give you a glimpse, okay? Lest we think that these men uh, were looking through rose-colored glasses when they signed the Decla- Declaration of Independence, thinking that once they signed it, everything was going to get better. That's not the case. Listen to what happened to these men. Out of 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, their conviction resulted in untold sufferings for themselves and their families. Of the 56 men, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of war. One of these men, Carter Braxton of Virginia, he was a wealthy planner and a trader, saw his ships sunk by the British Navy, his whole livelihood up in smoke. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts, and he died in poverty. He signed the Declaration. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. That same Thomas Nelson quietly ordered, General George Washington, to open fire on his home. The home was destroyed and Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and mills were destroyed for over a year. For over a year, he lived in forests and in caves, returning home only to find his wife dead and his 13 children vanished few weeks later he himself died from exhaustion none of these men signed the declaration of independence thinking that immediately benefits were going to be reaped none of these men signed the declaration of independence saying oh yeah it's all going to be good from here on out no they had a they had a they had a sense they had a hope that in the future what they were doing was going to be worth the immediate gap They had a sense that what they were doing was going to be worth the benefit that would be reaped in the long run. They knew that the benefit that we would have today would be worth everything that I've just read to you. You follow me here? These men signed the dotted line. Wrote their own death certificates, if you will. Knowingly. Not for immediate gratification. But because they had... This trust and this hope in what would come in the future. Pretty impressive, guys. This, uh, this is not too unlike Luke 19 in our parable this morning. We're going to see a group of people who face not immediate gratification, but a gap. A gap that's going to bring pain, a gap that's going to bring suffering. A gap that's going to bring hardship and even death. A gap that's not going to be easily swallowed, but they're going to have to face that gap knowing that there is a future hope to come. That's Luke 19. This parable uh, in Luke 19, uh, it's going to be 11 through 27 as you find that. This parable is unique in at least three reasons. Number one, uh, it is only found in Luke, and thus we've been looking at it in this series of the Luke and parables. It's only found in Luke. So it's unique in that way. Number two, it's unique that uh, just like the last two parables that I've showed you, the key to the parable, as William Barclay said, is hanging on the outside of the door. In the very first verse setting up the parable, Jesus uh, will tell us exactly why He's using this parable. Or the author in this case. The writer Luke will tell us exactly why Jesus was telling this parable. So it's unique in that way. It's one of only three in the Gospel of Luke. It tells us up front The reason or the intent that Jesus used it. Third reason it's unique is because it is the only parable in any of the Gospels and even in Luke. It's the only parable that uh, is based on a historical event. The story that Jesus tells is a story that the Jews who he told it to would be familiar with. The Jews who he told it to would understand the angle in the parable because it had historical basis. All right. So let's look at the parable itself. Starting in verse 12. I'm going to read through this pretty quickly. And I'm going to give you some of the historical context of this parable. And I'm going to set you up in just the same way that Jesus' listeners would be set up. Verse 12. So he said, that's Jesus. And here's the story. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then returned. Now, as soon as Jesus said this, his listeners would know something. They would know that this is In historical context. In about 4 BC, Herod the Great died. Herod the Great had three sons. Let me simplify this whole story for you here. Herod the Great had three sons, and one of his sons, Archelaus, can't even say it, Archelaus. He was put over charge of Judea. That was his inheritance. That was his kingdom, if you will. Well, Rome had to give approval to it. And so this son of Herod the Great. He couldn't just take over his kingdom in Judea. He had to go back and he had to go to Rome and he had to get approval from Augustus Caesar that he would declare him officially, this is your inheritance and now you do get Judea. And so uh, these listeners knew when Jesus said there was a nobleman, they're thinking Archelaus, who went to a distant country. He had to go to Rome before he could take his kingship in Judea. He went away to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself from Augustus Caesar Caesar. And then he returned. He got his kingdom. Augustus Caesar allowed him to, uh, to rule that area of Judea. He never named him king, but he did put him over charge of it. And so he got sent back uh, to his kingdom, that of Judea. And so the listeners knew this. The story was familiar. It had a historical basis. Keep going. Verse 13. And he called ten of his slaves. This is the nobleman. Called ten of his slaves. Now here's where Jesus departs from the historical account. He sets them up with this historical account. He says, There was a nobleman, and he had to go away to a far country to inherit the kingdom that had been promised to him, but he's coming back. And they go, that sounds familiar. And Jesus says, Okay, I'm glad that sounds familiar. Now, imagine this that same nobleman, he's got servants, and here's what he's going to tell his servants. And he called his ten slaves, or his servants, and gave them ten minus, and said to them, Do business with this. Until I come back. He called his slaves, his servants. Ten of them. And he gave them ten minas. That is equal to about, in our day, it, it, it would equal about three months wages. So just add up how much ever you get paid in a month. And if someone were to lay on you three months of what you get, that's about what these guys got. They got three months wages. I mean, the nobleman set them up. Ten servants. He gives them three months' wages and he gives them short but direct orders. Do business with this until I return. The inference is take this investment, take this down payment, multiply it, be faithful with it, use it so that when I come back, I'll see that you've been a faithful servant and that I've entrusted to you what I should have entrusted to you, and you've benefited my kingdom because of what I've invested in you. Keep going. But his citizens, that's the citizens of the noblemen, hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. This also is within the historical context. When the Jews found out that this guy was going to get, uh, uh, get to be king over Judea, they sent 50 Jews, 50 leaders of the Jewish nation to Augustus Caesar in Rome before this guy ever got there, and they said, listen, we don't want this guy as our king. We don't want him to be lord over us. And Augustus Caesar ruled against them and gave the guy his kingdom. And so these guys went away and they went back home. So this is within the historical context. They're saying, yeah, I understand. I know what you're talking about here. Keep going. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him. We do not want this man to reign over us. And so when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. So Jesus sets up the story using a historical event. And he says, now the guy's gone. He got his kingdom. A delegation was sent. They were to no avail. They said, we don't want this guy to be our king. But they got sent back. He gets the kingdom. And now he's back. Before he left, he had ten servants, by the way, and he told his ten servants, here's three months' wages, now go and you guys invest this, you use it, and you be profitable and faithful to what I've given to you, and when I come back, there's going to be an account for it. So that's where we are in the story. Jesus says, okay, you know the story, you know the parable now, but listen, imagine that this guy is back, and he's going to call his servants to account for that which he has invested in them. Now, we're going to get an account, not of all ten servants, but we're going to get a general account of three servants. And I want you to see how these three servants have done with the three months' wages. Verse 16. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minus, more, tenfold. And he said to him, this is the nobleman, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made Five minas, and he said to him also, You have been over, uh, you get, I'm sorry, and you are to be over five cities. Verse 20, and a third came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. In essence, he says, I was afraid to do anything with it. I was stalemate. And so I just put it in a handkerchief. This is a typical. Uh, custom of that day. The typical Oriental custom. They would just take the money and they would hide it. They'd put it in a handkerchief and they put it in their top drawer. And they wouldn't invest it, they wouldn't spend it, they wouldn't barter with it, they wouldn't trade with it, they wouldn't try and build upon it. They would just hide it. And they would save it for a rainy day. And so the inference is that I didn't think you were ever coming back. So I've just been stockpiling this here. I didn't really do anything with it. Just in case you did come back, I hadn't lost it, I can just give it back to you. So this guy has a, a bad assumption about his king. Keep going. Verse 22, He said to him, By your own words, I will judge you. You are a worthless slave or servant. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? The inference is, if you knew that were the case, you should have done something different. So your own answer condemns you because what you've said doesn't make sense. Verse 23, Then why did you not put my money in the bank? If that's the case, And having come, I would have collected it at least with interest. 24. Then he said to the bystanders, this is the nobleman, to all those who are standing by, watching these three men come to an account for the investment that has been given to them. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And the bystander said to him, Master, he already has ten. I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given, but from the one who does not have Even what he does have shall be taken away. He's been a worthless servant. He didn't invest what had been entrusted to him. 27, but these enemies of mine, referring back to the guys who sent delegation beforehand, these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, who did not want me to be their king, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So that's the parable. That's the historical setting. These Jews who were listening to this, the disciples, they knew. They're thinking back. This has happened before. Now, Jesus, what is the reason you're telling us this story? Why are you using this, this half-true story to tell us a parable? Go back to verse 11. The key to the parable, remember, is hanging on the door of the passage. Verse 11 tells us why this parable is here. The author tells us, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. And here's why. Because He was near Jerusalem. What would happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem? Everything goes downhill. Everything goes downhill. There's this grand entry, but it wanes quickly. And people begin to seek His life. People begin to seek to condemn Him. To bring Him to the cross. The passion will begin shortly. He's telling them this parable because the end is near. Jerusalem is near. They're just outside the gates. And they, that's the listeners, that is the nation of Israel, the disciples specifically who are listening in this context, they supposed. That word suppose means that they inferred, they guessed, they assumed, they supposed something, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, The reign of Christ, the Messiah taking his throne, they assumed, was going to appear immediately. For the nation of Israel, the prophecies of the Old Testament were sort of like two mountains that you see in a distance. When you see two mountains in a distance that are, in a sense, side by side, you can see the peaks. But at a distance, if you have two large mountains and two peaks... You don't always see the distance that might be between the two peaks. So through prophecy, the nation of Israel saw these two peaks, the first and the second coming of Christ, the coming as uh, as a lamb and the coming as a lion. They saw those from a distance through prophecy of the Old Testament. They saw them happening at the same time. They believed that the Messiah would come and he would set up an earthly kingdom here on earth. And that's to no fault of their own. They were looking through the lenses of the Old Testament and prophecy pointed that the king was coming. And so when the Messiah came and when they said, this is him, they said, he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to get us out of the rule of Rome. He's going to make life better in the here and in the now. We can't fault them for that. We have the benefit of looking at those two mountains from a different viewpoint. We have the benefit of seeing those two mountains maybe from the side view. And we see that although they may look through the lenses of prophecy to be side by side, happening at the same time, we're able to look back and see that there is this great valley between those two mountains, between the first coming and what we now know is the second coming of Christ, that there is this valley, there's this gap that must be walked through. And so Jesus, verse 11 says, is approaching Jerusalem. And as he approaches Jerusalem, all those who have gathered around Jesus think that the kingdom's coming. He's going to go in there and whoop, tail, and take names and set up His kingdom here on earth and we're all going to benefit right now and right here. It's going to be good. Jesus Jesus has a clue that that's what they're thinking. And He says, Hey, before we go in, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. And you guys may be familiar with this story. There was a nobleman. And he got an inheritance of a kingdom from his father. And in this inheritance of the kingdom from his father, there was a gap between the time that he was given the kingdom and the time that he would receive the kingdom. The kingdom was now, but it was not quite yet. You remember in the Old Testament when David was anointed king? Did David get the throne right away? Did David get the crown right away? No, he didn't. It's an interesting story. David was anointed, but he didn't get the throne until the current king, Saul, died. Saul didn't want to go away. Saul didn't want David to become king. So you see this lapse, this gap between the time when David was anointed king, he was given the kingdom, and the time when he got the throne and he got the crown. That's the gap that Jesus is trying to tell the disciples about. That's the valley between the mountains of the Lamb and the Lion that He's trying to clue them in on because He knows these guys think that we're going into Jerusalem and it's going to be all great, but Jesus knows I'm going in and there's going to be a major event. It's going to be a big deal, but it's not going to be what they're expecting. And in fact, I'm going to have to go away. I'm going to have to go away just like who? Just like the man who inherited a kingdom back in 4 B.C. You remember that, guys? And he had to go away... And he had to wait. And he had to receive his kingdom from those who were in authority. Has Jesus had to go away? Yes. He knew, and he was giving this parable to the disciples because he knew, I'm about to go away. Just like the nobleman, I'll have to go away. And although the kingdom has been promised to me, I'll have to go away to the authority. I'll have to go away to the right hand of the Father. And at the appropriate time, he's going to say, okay, now it's yours. Now it's yours. And there will be citizens of that kingdom who don't want me to be king. Who would they be? They would be the nation of Israel. They would be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who didn't believe Jesus to be the Messiah. They would say, We have no king but Caesar. This man is not our king. But there would also be servants to the noblemen, Jesus says. There will be slaves. There will be servants. There will be believers. There will be disciples. Who in this gap, who in this gap have been given a great responsibility. You've been given this gift. You've been given this gift and you've been entrusted with it that you would do something with it. What are the listeners left to do? What are the listeners left to do? They're to look at the three servants as they approach the nobleman in the story. And they're to decide, just as you and I are forced to decide, which one of these servants are we going to resemble? You see, because when Christ does come back, when the nobleman does come back, He is going to call us who have been entrusted with this great gift. He's going to call us to an account. You say, well, what is this gift? What have we been entrusted with? They all get, did you notice, they all get the same amount. This parable closely resembles a parable in Matthew uh, 25, but it's different in a couple ways. One of the ways that it's different is that in Matthew 25, each of the servants gets a different amount of talents, gets a different amount of money to be investing. In this case, they all, did you notice, they all get the same amount. Most theologians believe that in Matthew 25, it's a reference to the gifts that we get. The the Galatians 5 gifts, those things that we get uh, inherently from the Holy Spirit, our giftedness, our talents, our abilities, those things that we can use specific to our own capabilities, those gifts we get from Christ, Matthew 25 refers to those. We all get different gifts, but we all have to invest them the same. We all have to be faithful to those different gifts. Luke 19 is different in the sense that we all get the same thing. So what is he talking about here? Is he talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? No. He's talking about, most theologians believe, he's talking about the gospel message, the word of God. If you look back at the previous section, the previous story of Luke 19 is the story of Zacchaeus, where Jesus finds Zacchaeus, who's climbed up in the tree. You remember the story from when you were a kid. Uh, Zacchaeus, this wee little man, a wee little man was he, he climbed up in the uh, tree to see Jesus, right? Comes down, Jesus goes and he eats with this guy, a tax collector, and he gets saved. And the last verse of that section says what? See verse 10? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So we're in a context of Jesus is focused on the lost. But He's got to go away. And there's this time span. There's this gap between when the kingdom is promised to Him and when He actually gets the throne and the crown. But in the meantime, He entrusts to His servants this Thing, this thing of equal worth to each one of us. It's the gospel message. It's the cause of Christ to seek and to save the lost. We've each been given it equally. We use our gifts and our talents as they are appropriate to further the kingdom, but we've each been given the same message, the same responsibility. And when Christ come back, comes back, He's going to say, Servants, what have you done with that which I've invested in you? With that which I've left to you? Have you furthered the kingdom? Have you been a benefit to the kingdom? Have you profited my kingdom? And each of us fall into one of three categories. We are either going to be faithful, like the first guy, very faithful, or like the second guy, we're going to be pretty faithful, or like the last guy, we're not going to be faithful at all. Or maybe there's a fourth category, that we fall into the category of the citizens of the country. That we're not even faithful because we've not even been entrusted because why? we haven't bowed the knee to the king in the first place and he never entrusted this thing to us. So who are we? The question for us today is, who are we? Are we servants who have been faithful to the nobleman who's come entrusted with us with this great gift, this great cause, who has gone away Who has left us in this valley, in this gap. And when He returns, will He find us faithful? Will He find us about the business that He has left to us? Or will He find us unfaithful? The question for us today is, would you be found ready and about His business? It's one thing to be committed to a cause when the reward is in sight or in reach, but it's completely another to be committed when the reward is far off. Jesus warned His followers that they would not necessarily get immediate material gratification for following because the kingdom they thought was now was in fact not yet. The disciples were ready for the benefits that were to come as Jesus entered Jerusalem and they thought they were coming now. But the message that Christ had for them was that they weren't quite to be Yet, They were about to realize this valley and we, in fact, are still in this valley. We still live in this gap. This is an interesting parable because we find ourselves in the exact same gap that the disciples were about to find themselves in. And so this parable is unique in that it it speaks directly to us that as we find ourselves in this gap, we are to be like those servants, ready... For the King who is coming, will we be found ready? I'm reading a book. It's by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He uh, was born in, I think, uh, 1906. Dietrich wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he wrote of uh, cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace, he explains, is grace taken lightly and without much thought, meditation, gratefulness, or contrition. Cheap grace has no effect, no effect or no affect upon the recipient. Costly grace, on the other hand, is grace understood biblically and therefore correctly. It's a grace that both affects our hand, our actions, it's effective, and it is both affective. It touches our emotions and our heart. It touches us deeply. Your actions and your emotions are altered, he says, when you comprehend the amazing thing that is the costly grace of God. He makes another distinction that I, that I found interesting. He says that some of us understand that sin, this thing of sin, has been justified. has been taken care of. But there are others who understand, maybe on a deeper level, that not just sin has been justified, but that we, the sinner, have been justified. Cheap grace is academic. Grace cancels out my sin and now we can go on and live our lives just like we had before. That thing, that sin thing, has been taken care of. Costly grace, on the other hand, isn't purely academic and void of all emotion. Costly grace, he said, breaks our heart and radically alters our course in life. It makes a difference. It causes us, even when there's a gap even when the benefit to be reaped, even when the reward is not automatic and immediate, costly grace, clearly understanding that not just sin has been taken care of, but we, the sinner, have been taken care of by the costly grace of God. That understanding, he says, will cause us to be faithful, profitable through the gap even when the reward isn't immediate. Now, let me tell you about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This guy uh, was a theologian, but he came over to New York to study during the time that Hitler was doing his business over in Germany. And the Nazis were running wild. This guy had the opportunity to stay in New York, in the safety of New York, but he decided, you know what, I can't leave my fellow Germans over there to face this alone. And so he went back in the heat of the battle in the 40s. He went back and he stood up And he spoke out against uh, the Nazis and against Hitler. It's uh, it's been thought that he was part of this uh, small group of people that sought to even, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kill Hitler, to assassinate Hitler. He was brought in with that group. He was arrested in 1943. Spent about two years in prison for his beliefs, for what he believed. For his stance in the gospel and for his stance on social justice against what Hitler was doing. Spent about two years in prison, wrote a lot of books, wrote a lot of good theology while he was there. In 1945, the guy was executed for his beliefs, all the while remaining faithful. He remained faithful. Why? What would cause a guy to do such a thing? What would cause a guy in a gap where the reward is nowhere to be seen, where the benefit is so far off? Where there's so much pain, where there's so much hardship, and even death. What would cause a guy like that to be so committed, so faithful, and profitable to the kingdom? In his own words, he would say, it would be the costliness of the grace that my God has provided. It touched him in a deep way. It effected his life, and it affected his life. It changed his actions, and it touched him so deeply that everything else in his life changed. This type of Christianity is foreign to many of us. Like the disciples who heard this parable, we may be in danger of being short-sighted when it comes to the kingdom. For some, Christianity is only about the here and now. What can Christ do for me now? Can I tell you, folks, Christ didn't just die so that your life in the here and now could be better. We tend to think that. We tend to live that way. That this thing about Christianity, our committedness to Christianity is about what going to church can do to benefit me now. When in fact, that's not the gospel account. That's not the New Testament account of why Christ was here. It's not what Paul thought. And that's not what Jesus taught. Can I tell you, in fact, Jesus never intended. Jesus never intended, and therefore God, to make something beautiful out of your life. His plan and his goal had always been to kill you off and to birth a new man in Christ, in your place. You see, many of us think that Christianity is this thing we add to our life that will make our life somehow better. That it will clean us up maybe a little bit morally. That God will come in and He'll clean us all up and He'll set us up straight. And now He'll walk alongside of us and make our life better. That was not the intent of Christ. That's not correct. New Testament, or even Old Testament theology. Christ came to pay a debt of sin, not to make our life better. He came to kill us off, the old man to be gone, passed away, and for us to be raised up, a new man. Listen to the words of the New Testament. Paul said that we are to take up our cross, crucify ourselves with Christ, that it is no longer us that live, but Christ that lives through us. We are to count everything as lost. We are to drop our nets and follow. We're to leave things behind. We're to let the dead bury the dead. We're to put our hands to the plow and not look back. For us and for Paul, to die and go and be with Christ is beneficial than to remain in this life. That's perspective of the committed. That's the perspective of someone who can see past the gap Someone who can see past the current hardship, the current pain, the current gap before the king comes back and he makes everything else right. That's someone who's been deeply moved and affected by costly grace. That's someone who knows that not just sin has been dealt with, but me, me, the sinner, has been dealt with. Some of us have added Christianity to our lives like some sort of life enhancement program. That God is this genie in a bottle that if we rub in the right way the right number of times we get every desire of our heart. It's not the following of Christ that the Bible spoke of. Where do verses like these come from? They come from men who have been so impacted by the God of the universe, the sovereign God who reached down to save sinners like you and I that they can't help but be radically changed and radically moved in every part of their life Every compartment of their life, every facet of their life becomes infected by what this God has done and by who this God is. You see, they see the costliness of the grace that's been provided to them. When Christ comes back, and I'll close with this, how will He find us? Will He find us with Christianity tacked onto our life? Or will he find us fully consumed? Every fiber of our being, our heart, mind, soul, and strength. When Julius Caesar landed on the shores of Britain and his Roman legions, he took a bold and decisive step to ensure the success of his military venture. Ordering his men to march to the edge of the cliffs of Dover, he commanded them to look down at the water below. To their amazement, they saw every ship in which they had crossed the channel engulfed in flames. Caesar himself had deliberately burned the ships and cut off every possibility of retreat. Now that his soldiers were unable to return to the continent, there was nothing left for them to do but to advance and conquer. And that is exactly what they did. They forgot what was behind and they pressed forward to the high mark and the calling that was before them. They understood where they were. Like the men of the Old Testament, the sons of Issachar, who it was said, they understood the times in which they lived. They understood that they lived in the valley. They lived in the gap. And they were so moved and impressed by the God that they served, knowing that the king was coming back, that that which was entrusted to them, they would invest it and they would turn it over. They would make it profitable. They would bring more to the same grace that they were brought to Let me tell you about one last guy. A guy named David Livingston came across this quote and it just captured the heart of what I want to communicate to you this morning. David Livingston was a famous missionary to the continent of Africa and um, he was known for his total abandonment and commitment to his mission. One, uh, one missionary organization wrote David Livingston and they wrote him this. They said, David, have you found a good road into where you are. Because if you found a good road into where you are, we want to send you some more men. They want to join you. Listen to what Livingston wrote back. Livingston wrote back, If you have men who will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. What level of commitment do you have, folks? How committed are you in the gap to the king who's coming? Is your life fully engulfed? Every compartment of your life, every facet of your life affected? Does it all fall under the kingdom and the king to come? Or is your life only touched three out of four Sundays, maybe a month? True biblical Christianity true, biblical, costly discipleship understands correctly three things. Let me give these to you. Who God is, what He is doing, and what our role in that is. Who God is. One of my favorite pastors, Tony Evans, he said this in a book called Time to Get Serious. It's a devotional book that I read some time ago. Very first page, he says, If God is the all consuming, all powerful, all knowing, loving, and infinite creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the universe, then nothing else we do matters quite as much as getting to know him and know him well. Who is he? He's the prophet who died for our sins. He's the priest who sits at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding on our behalf. And he is the coming king. He is prophet, priest, and king. That's who he is. What is he doing? Second Peter three nine says that he is being patient. He's being patient towards those who is calling out, not wishing that any of us would pay, uh, perish, but that we might all come to salvation. He has come to seek and to save the lost. What is our part? He is entrusted to us in this gap, before he returns, before the hammer falls, before the king comes back, calls everyone to account and sets everything straight. He has left us. With the keys to the kingdom. With the keys to life and death. He's entrusted the gospel message to us. Now how will we be found? Will we be found faithful? If we're found faithful, we'll be rewarded. If we're not found faithful, we're found unfaithful. And the consequences of being found unfaithful are just as grim. Or maybe we're the third person. We're found like the citizens of the country... Who said, We have no king but Caesar, will not bow the knee to that king. You only fall in three categories faithful servant, unfaithful servant, or no servant at all. You've never bowed the knee. Where are you going to end up? Let's pray.